This podcast is supported by Audible. To find out how you can get a free audiobook of your choice just for trying Audible, check out audibletrial.com slash lead. This is Michael Roberto, and you're listening to Leader Lab. So who are you and what do you do? My name is Mike Roberto, and I'm a professor at Bryant University in Smithfield, Rhode Island. Uh, I write and I teach and I consult on leadership. Uh, Most of my work is focused on how leaders make decisions and how they work with their teams to make decisions. And I really enjoy helping uh, people improve in their abilities and thinking about some of the key challenges they face in organizations. Um, Why do we make flawed choices at times and how do we get better at it? And and the new book uh, deals a lot with with choices, making better choices, et cetera. The the new book, or I should say, the the brand new old book with new content, um, totally repackaged, is why great leaders don't take yes for an answer. Um, you know, you, you you phrased it out that way. So let me actually just have that be the first question: Why do great leaders not take yes for an answer? That's a great, great question. So, you know, Barry Rand, who uh, is the CEO of AARP, and he used to run Avis Rental Car, and, and he was a senior executive at Xerox many years ago. He has this great phrase, if you have a yes man working for you, one of you is redundant. And, uh, you know, I think, unfortunately, you know, charismatic, very strong-willed leaders often hear a lot of yes. In other words, they hear a lot of people agreeing with them or failing to express objections to their moves. Uh, the bottom line is in many large organizations in particular – People um, have a hard time speaking up, and they don't necessarily express dissent um, when they have views um, that are in opposition to what they perceive to be either the conventional wisdom or the prevailing uh, mode of thought in the organization. And so, you know, what really what I argue is that, you know, it's not that uh, leaders go out and hire people who are sycophants necessarily. I, I think actually what happens is leaders don't hire yes men or yes women. They create them. The kind of climate and the culture they create in the organization ends up uh, making it very difficult at times for people to speak up. And so I say great leaders, the most effective ones, don't touch, take yes for an answer, meaning they understand that there is this natural tendency in human nature for people to defer and to perhaps suppress their own opinions at times. And so they go the extra mile to encourage divergent thinking and make sure they get all sides of the issue on the table. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, if you dig deep, you see those examples throughout history. You know, I'm, I'm a huge fan of the book Team of Rivals and the, uh, the movie was loosely based on it. Uh, I was yeah. a little disappointed because I wanted it to be based more on that concept. But there's even there's a sort of an apocryphal story about Alfred P. Sloan at General Motors sitting in the boardroom one day and, and saying, saying to all of the, the board, you know, I, I think we're in complete agreement about what we need to do with this decision. And everybody nods their heads and he says, great, then I move that we put this decision off for a month, go back and think about a reason to disagree. Um, that way we'll know we'll have explored that option. Talk a little bit about that role. Consensus sounds great. It sounds like an ideal, but the great leaders know that conflict can actually help people explore all possible options and arrive at a better, a better solution or a better initiative. Right. I, you know, I'm a big believer that some level of healthy conflict is necessary to to make better decisions. It helps you generate and uh, discuss more options, uncover hidden risks, really helps you surface and then probe your assumptions more carefully. And I think it's, it's really crucial to have that give and take that takes place, that can take place within a team. And I think at the, at the end of the day, you know, conflict alone is not enough. You do have to have some level of alignment, some level of commitment within the team to be able to go forward and execute together. So it's, it's this balance of divergent and convergent thinking that you need in the team. 
But I think that word consensus, a loaded term, I sort of um, say, look, it's not about unanimity. It's about getting people committed to cooperate in the implementation and, and, and having people who have a strong shared understanding of the direction they're headed. But the last thing you want, I think, to do is strive for unanimity. I think that's where groupthink takes place in many instances. Oh, no, I, I totally agree. I, I feel like a lot of times when there's consensus, at least for, from my background and looking at a lot of research on creative problem solving and innovation, a lot of times when there's consensus, it means that not enough ideas have even been thrown out to be challenged. And you still might move forward without total consensus, but the idea is that everybody at least understands, even if it wasn't their idea and so they can't, uh, they can't champion it, they still understand why that idea won out and are still committed to pushing that uh, project forward. That's right. And I, I talk about, you know, in, in the latter half of the book, I talk about the idea of uh, developing a fair and legitimate process. If people feel like their voice has been heard and that you've genuinely considered their views, that you've run a fairly transparent process and that you've really explained your rationale to them when you've made your final call as a leader. If you do all of those things, they tend to perceive that process to be fair and legitimate, i.e. it's not a charade of consultation, but it's actually a genuine uh, attempt to hear others' views. Well, then even as a leader, if you make an unpopular call or if you go against a number of folks on your team and the decision you make, well, they're much more likely to commit to it if they feel like they've been part of that really genuine process. So I think that's the key. You know, you want that healthy uh, conflict, but that does mean that therefore people are going to be arguing potentially an alternative for an alternative or an idea that they don't, that doesn't end up getting chosen. You need to make sure you bring them along during that process. So they still are with you during execution of the, of the plan of action. Absolutely. Now I want to go back and revisit something you said, which was that uh, a lot of times leaders don't hire yes men, people become yes men, and, and great leaders sort of draw them out of that. What, what are some of the tactics that uh, leader, great leaders use to overcome that sort of um, silent barrier that people put in themselves, the sort of consensus need people ha- may have, feeling like that's what the leader wants? What are some ways leaders get past that? So, you know, that's one of the things that I really, you know, I'm really happy about with the book and with the research I've done is to really try to offer both some great stories of what leaders have done, but also some specific techniques that can be very helpful. So, for example, I talk about the idea of, um, of having people potentially role play the competition as a way to get people to think about, okay, how, how does the other side, you know, that we're competing with, how do they think about this issue? Um, what they, might they do in reaction to our particular plan? Um, I talk about uh, splitting your team into subgroups and having them generate and debate alternatives as a mechanism for this. Uh, um, I describe a technique that Gary Klein has created called the pre-mortem, where you think about what will you be saying at the postmortem if your plan fails as a way of sort of reasoning through the risks uh, with your plan of action? Um, I talk about the use of devil's advocates in a process as a way to spur divergent thinking. So, um, Or even what IDEO, the great product design firm, does, um, they use extreme users to drive divergent thinking. So in, in, instead of doing the traditional focus group as part of their research, um, they don't find normal users. They find extreme users, people who are um, abnormal in a sense in the way they use a particular product or service. Um, they're either you know complete diehards, you know fanatical about the product, or maybe they never use the product, and they use those extremes to help drive them to think differently, if you will. So, describe a number of those techniques in the book around how you can spur people to think differently. And I think the key as a leader is you have to understand you need those. It's not enough to just say my door is always open. That's a very passive form of leadership. And as I always like to say, bad news 
and dissenting views don't walk through open doors in many organizations. Yeah, and that that is of course assuming that the door is actually open even though you said it's open, you know? Or yes. or that the calendar allots for the time for that person, et cetera. But then beyond that, there are you need to be very, very committed and serious about the, the tactics that you use. And one, I love it because it's, it's new to this edition of the book, um, but it's actually not that new. It's a several hundred year old, uh, maybe even thousands of year old technique that was used by the Catholic Church and is actually probably misused now. And you, you talked about it a little bit already, but let's drill down on this idea of the devil's advocate and how it was used in, in the past and how leaders can use it successfully now. Sure. So I had spent a lot of time uh, looking at this in in the first edition of the book, but um, and I advocated the use of a devil's ab- I, I argued for the use of a devil's advocate as a means of driving different thinking and, and debate. But one of the things I found over the last eight years in working with organizations is that so many times the devil's advocate is misused or not used effectively. And so I added a new chapter really focused on how do you make this technique work constructively? Uh, I think, uh, you know, what are the dangers? So first of all, what are the virtues of the devil's advocate? It is a 500-year-old technique developed by the Catholic Church uh, in the process of naming people saints. I think the amazing thing about it is Pope Sixtus V created the technique technique. The devil's lawyer was there to critique nominations for sainthood. And it worked beautifully. It made the process of canonization very rigorous. Only 98 people over the next 400 years became saints. Uh, John Paul II named almost 500 people saints in his 25 plus years as pope. And uh, he did it because he removed the devil's advocate from the process in 1983. So it shows you the power the technique can have. Um, Unfortunately, um, and I describe other leaders who've used it effectively, mo- perhaps most famously, John Kennedy appointed two uh, devil's advocates to help him think through the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, and uh, the book features some of the research I did, including interviewing Robert McNamara about what happened during the crisis. The downside is I've heard too many stories of, oh, we've got that contrarian on our management team who's just a broken record. You know, you know Sammy just constantly brings up, you know, that the sky is falling and... Uh, all we hear is objections and obstructionism, and uh, people get defensive, and then it gets personal. So I heard a lot of that. And so really what I talk about is the fact that I think there's two modes of devil's advocacy. The dysfunctional mode is one where people view the role of devil's advocate just to tear apart ideas, poke holes, um, you know, find all the objections, essentially. That's where you see a devil's advocate making a lot of statements, declaring their point of view, and trying to persuade people to adopt their point of view on an issue. I think a much more constructive perspective on the devil's advocate is to view your role as your job isn't to veto the plan on the table. Your job is to open up people's minds, get them to think differently about the situation. It's to ask a lot of questions, to help the group generate other options, potentially, even if you yourself don't have another option, perhaps, but help the group perhaps bring other options to the table or new information to the table. And so it's it's very much... Uh, helping the group through the process much more through the Socratic method and less through the forceful statement of an opinion. I think that kind of a devil's advocate can be very, very effective. No, absolutely. And, and you know, one of the things I think is interesting is, is back in the time when the Catholic Church was using it, it was, uh, I, I think a lot of times now we just lightly throw on this idea of the devil's advocate and say, well, let me play the devil's advocate for a moment, right? As if you can play it for a moment and then sort of switch back. And they treated it like a, a sacred duty. And I think, if I remember right, one of the other terms for that devil's advocate role was the defender of the faith role, knowing that sure. without this level of, without considering the possible dissenting options and dissenting viewpoints, we can't have a solid unified uh, idea. And I think the same thing happens in, in organizations now without 
considering all the different ways the competition views us or all the different ways our project could, could fail or could be poorly received, then we can't have a strong offering. Uh, that is true. And I think, you know, there's some evidence from experimental research showing that people do become better at this technique with some practice. Then it's not as easy to play the role of devil's advocate as people sometimes think. Um, and, uh, and I think there also is some value and there's research showing that the more authentic the devil's advocate is being, you know, the more effective they can be. Um, I also think, though, that the approach really and, and the kinds of questions and the kinds of um, interventions you make as a devil's advocate are so important. And so I describe, for example, how at Pixar, you know, the great uh, animation uh, film studio that's made Toy Story and Finding Nemo and the like, that they um, have a culture of, of, of lots of critique. I mean, the way they make great movies are constantly taking a hard look at storylines, at animation, etc. And that kind of a heavy culture of critique can, can of course, really become problematic if over the course of two years as an animator or as, a, as, a, as someone working on a film if you're constantly being criticized. And so they've really looked to improv comedy and to the great sort of rule of yes and. You know, it's not no but, it's yes and. How do you build on others' ideas? And so they've taken that, adopt, adapted that. They call it plussing at Pixar. And plussing means instead of starting with the the weaknesses in something that's being presented to you. Start with, is there something there that's good that could be built upon, that can be improved? And it sounds like a very subtle, you know, oh, that's just semantics, but it really is powerful to be able to do that effectively. Yeah, and I think that's one of the keys, and one of the keys you lay out and talk about in the book is it's not just about generating more conflict. It's it's finding a way to do that where everybody still is in good spirits, still understands the, the mission of it, and ultimately can can pivot from that conflict to, you could call it consensus, you can call it, um, you know, a uniformness about what the goal is, uh, or just agreement. W- what are some of the other tactics and ways that great leaders uh, transition once we've a- examined all possible options through this sort of strategic use of polite conflict, as we'll call it, or any of the other tactics, and then move forward towards gaining agreement? Well, I think one of the keys is you have to also, in addition to having a set of tools for generating that divergent thinking, you then have to re- realize that no matter how great you are at facilitating, you're going to end up with situations where people are a bit, uh, you know, at an impasse of some kind, or they're going to have a hard time reconciling different points of view. So you have to have sort of a second bag of tricks, right? Now you have to have a bag of tricks that's about how do you intervene as a leader, um, to try to get them to see the other's point of view and, and, and bring them maybe not completely to agreement, but to help make sure at least you can keep that conflict on a, in a positive tone and the like. And so I talk about things like being able to step in and reframe an issue so that people can maybe look at it a little differently, helping to sort of shake them out of their existing uh, entrenched position. Uh, one thing I love that I, I, I worked with, uh, I was doing some research uh, at a nonprofit where uh, the leader saw sort of two camps forming, and he asked, you know, Camp A, could you go and come back to me with all the reasons why we should actually adopt the other side's proposal? And he went to Camp B, and he, and he did the same thing. And asking them to come back and essentially argue the other side it opened up people's minds. Wow, I, okay, so that other point of view is not so unreasonable. I, I get the logic because they were forced to actually go through it, if you will. So there is that second bag of tricks that I think is so important that you have to have. The ability to go in, reframe, get people to see the other side. Um, get, sometimes it's as simple as getting them to go back to underlying assumptions and criteria that they're going to use to make the decision. Because sometimes we get so focused on our position and we forget that um, – 
you know, there's a whole bunch beneath that position, assumptions, facts, criteria, and getting them to work that may be a way that, to get them to reduce the level of contention and, and make some progress. Yeah, you know, I was thinking as you were talking how much more we could get done in Washington if we assigned each party to look at the other side's arguments and, yeah. and make a case for why it would work uh, and then come back together. Oh, man. I used this great example from Washington actually about – and the other piece to getting progress after you've had some level of conflict is I talk about the power of small wins. And, and using a small wins approach, Carl Weick, of course, a great um, – uh, social uh, psychologist wrote uh, about small wins back in the mid-1980s, the power of taking a difficult, complex problem and breaking it down into smaller parts to make progress, to attract allies, to deter opponents, to build momentum, to prove some results and make progress. And I talk about that in a decision-making process. You know, The old model of decision-making was you get a lot of divergent thinking first. You brainstorm like crazy. And then you have a level of convergent thinking and you try to come to some agreement. And I sort of question that and say, no, actually what I see the best management teams doing is much more an iterative, iterative process where there's some level of divergence and then they find some elements of common ground or they come to some intermediate agreements. Then they might diverge again a bit and then come back again. And the ability to do that is really key because if you just diverge like crazy, sometimes you get so far apart, now it gets really hard to bring people back together. And uh, I talk about the 1983 Social Security crisis and how they used a small wins approach to take a really contentious issue and come to a bipartisan agreement. We wish we could do that today. I'm amazed not more, more people haven't gone back and looked at the way they did that because uh, uh, President Reagan and Speaker O'Neill did such an amazing job of laying out a process and bringing through people, people through sort of a small wins approach to getting to a, 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 an agreement. It's a great one. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And I want to um I want to transition a bit from the book to yourself and ask you a couple questions. Uh sure. first of all, what are you reading now? So I I'm a, I, I read like crazy. Um I use a lot of my time on airplanes or any you know any time I I have that kind of dead time if you will to to read. But I don't just read business books. Um first of all as a scholar in in my area looking at team dynamics and leadership, I'm reading a lot of you know in addition to sort of the business literature I'm reading in psychology and you know and other behavioral science work. But perhaps more fun, I'm a history buff, right? So I love reading history. You mentioned Lincoln. I talk about him a bit in the book. I talk about Kennedy, Eisenhower, uh, Churchill, others. Um, you know, so I love drawing lessons from there. It's also a great way to teach leaders, to teach students or executives. So um, you know, right now, I, I'm reading a few different uh, pieces of history. I'm looking forward to reading the new uh, Joseph Ellis book about um, – about uh, 1776 and Washington and the like. Um, I just finished um, um, Meacham's book on Andrew Jackson, which I really liked, and I want to read his one on Jefferson. Um, so I'm always looking for great history books. Um, and then, you know, in the business book literature, there's some great books for, for me who loves uh, decision-making. Chip and Dan Heath have a new book on decision-making that's fantastic. I love their work. Um, and then, as you know, I read a blog, and so I read like crazy every day. And uh, the blog is my way of sort of synthesizing or, or making sense of what I'm reading out there in a variety of different areas. And then I write about it. So I, I love doing that. I think the ability to reflect on what you've read is so crucial too. And I should give full disclosure to our listeners. I, I normally ask this question of all guests, but with, with Michael, I'm asking it for a personal reason because 
Michael's blog is the source of so many, so many, there are so many papers that I was totally unaware of, so many studies and research papers, that his blog is the one that makes me finally aware of them, and it, it connects the pieces, and we've written about um, different studies and the application of them, and, and we owe Michael the tip-off for a lot of those <laughs> studies, so I'm also curious to say, well, what is he reading now? Maybe maybe as I'm building my summer reading list, maybe I need to uh, to figure that out. And so in Yeah, a- the, other one, the other one that I'm, I'm just going to start... Um, is Adam Grant's Givers and Takers. I don't know if you've read that yet. Yeah, I just He's finished a, it. Really did, you, good. did you like it? Yeah, I did. I, 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 I love the concept. And, I, you know, we got introduced to Adam's work with Dan Pink's The, the newest book, To Sell as Human, um, which is really solid. And I, I loved both the concept of ambiverts and also the idea of, of givers being winners on either side of the spectrum. In fact, uh, Adam is scheduled to be uh, on the podcast coming up in a few weeks which I'm really looking forward to having just finished the book. So, Super. Yeah, I think, you know, on the, on the history side, what I, what I think is really fun is the fact that, um, you know, there's, there's – I think sometimes the, 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 um, we, we don't get into the nuts and bolts sometimes of what really went into how some of these leaders made decisions, right? We know the overall story, and I've loved sort of digging deeper and looking at how Eisenhower – made the key decisions about D-Day, for example, or um, the just, fa- for me, that's fascinating, right? Um, and uh, I just love doing that. And then similarly, the opposite is, you know, the other side of my brain is reading academic studies and learning, you know, what are we doing as scholars? And I think you put two together and, and now you have just a, you know, really good understanding of how theory becomes practice. Oh, no, absolutely. Or, or how, you know, ironically, in the case of people like Lincoln or even uh, like Reagan and Speaker O'Neill, that they were using what research found out to work long before we had the research on it, which yes. just sort of like double proves it. You know, we've proven it in the lab and, oh, yeah, it happened you know, 30 years ago in this example, too. So and I, I think you're right. I think too many times we focus on the, the leader and that they did something just by sheer will of it instead of the amount of uh, consensus building and conflict they have to deal with, the amount of effort that goes into just making sure they're making the right decision before they even move forward. There's a whole lot more to leadership than just that sort of sheer will and influence, but we tend to we tend to gloss over it and like those stories uh, more, but those can't really teach us how to be better leaders. It's tough. It's like when, when people talk about um, uh, Steve Jobs, who, you know, I obviously admire a great deal for everything he accomplished, but I, I always get a good laugh from executives when I tell them, if you try to emulate Steve Jobs, you probably end up in a straitjacket. Right. I mean, I, I'm not sure there's a lot there that you could emulate. Right. It's such a unique, iconoclastic sort of way of leading. And so you have to be careful sometimes about we looked we sort of hero worship certain people. I'm not saying they were successful. I think Jobs did an amazing thing. I'm just not sure, you know, I could emulate that. Right. I mean, um, and so that's always the challenge, I think. I love the uh, – I think it was Bob Sutton who said that Steve Jobs is a Rorschach test. Basically, when you look at him and his example, he will teach you whatever you already wanted to believe about how to act and behave and lead because he's so all over the place. And it, it worked for him, but it's, yep. you're probably just going to pick what you wanted out of that. So Steve Jobs is, is a Rorschach test in that example. And truthfully, as, as time goes on and we get a peek, is one thing I liked about Walter Isaacson's book. We got a peek into how we actually led the organization and how he interacted with other people. And, uh, you know, it, it doesn't paint him in the best light, but it paints him in an accurate light that we can learn from. The one thing I will say that I, you know, I found interestingly in common between Apple, Google, and Intuit, you know, three sort of West Coast, uh, 
very progressive technology firms, been very successful. All of them are big advocates of, of small teams to make key decisions. You know, at Intuit, they have this uh, two-pizza rule that I love, which is, you know, if you have a tough problem that software developers are working on, um, put in the room uh, only as many developers as you can feed with two large pizzas. And, uh, you know, that means you're probably looking at no more than, you know, you're staying in the single digits. And, of course, what we know from research in group dynamics is that's probably right, that uh, once that team gets much bigger. So it's interesting that the firms and at Google, when Larry Page became CEO again, he laid out this sort of vision of the reforms he wanted and how decisions were being made at Google. He was afraid the company was getting too bureaucratic. And one of the things he wanted was small teams focused on making choices. And at Apple, you know, again, you get these great stories. One of the stories I tell is of, a, of, a, of Jobs throwing people out of meetings when he felt like too many people were showing up. You know, and I know that's pretty harsh, but the notion of sort of these, you know, in Boston, we say wicked smart, you know, uh, small groups, not so bad, right? Pretty effective. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, and, and uh, some of the ways to lead some of those uh, small groups into making the right decisions is, is what you talk about in the book from conflict and, and consensus and the combination of it, which is, I love the title, which is why great leaders don't take yes for an answer. Uh, one other question, what are you working on next? What's coming down the line for you? So a couple of uh, things that, um, you know, are sort of on my plate. Um, like you, I've been very kind of getting very interested in sort of creativity and innovation and, and looking at that. Um, I'm leading a program at our school at Bryant where we do this sort of intensive almost like boot camp experience on innovation um, that we put all of the students through. And so I'm getting very interested in, um, in that. I, obviously, it's very close to what I've already done in my work, and I know you, you're doing work in there. And so um, really looking and exploring some of the issues of uh, how, do you, um, how do you create both the environment conducive to that um, as well as the kinds of processes that can be effective at doing that. A lot of attention, for example, has been given lately to design thinking and the whole process that folks like IDEO have pioneered. And, and, um, and while they've been very effective with it, you know, I'm looking and interested in how do, how do other firms, you know, outside of design, um, do some of these kinds of things and how they apply it. So that's one area that I've become uh, very, very interested in over the last year or so. Oh, well, very cool. And it's, I, I'll warn you, it's a bit of a, uh, it's a bit of a black hole or a rabbit trail. I, I was sold out on straight all leadership research and started to come down this innovation track. And suddenly I realized all of the intersections between leadership, innovation, and strategy, which is what became our sort of big three concepts. And, and you just, you become an innovation junkie. I, we had Saul Kaplan on a couple months ago and he, he said that was, he's an innovation junkie. I said, I've never heard that term, but that's, that's exactly what I've become. Yeah, Saul, Saul uh, came over to the first uh, – this past January was the first year I ran this giant – we call it IDEA, Innovation and Design Experience for All. We put all 800 freshmen through this three-day intensive experience. We taught them design thinking and a number of other techniques and had them work on real-world projects. Um, we even put them on buses and dropped them off all around Greater Providence to work on field research on their issues and then come back and do brainstorming and the like. And Saul came over and he served as a judge for the projects. And uh, he was so thrilled to see, like, you know, the kinds of ideas he's working on actually coming to life. So it's fun. But you're right. Junkie's a good word. 
Yeah, no, for sure. And and we'll be we'll be keeping tabs on that. I love I love what you're doing that you're doing it at all freshman level. I think, you know, I teach a class on creativity and innovation and we have lots of universities have classes on it, but uh short of Stanford and and now Bryant and a couple other places, I'm not aware of a this sort of immersive experience approach uh, to teaching it all, which is awesome. We we'll keep tabs on that. Yeah, the other thing that uh, just quickly uh, we're working on a case that we hope to come out with uh, pretty soon. I uh, worked with a student um, for his honors thesis, and we wrote a um, case study about Betaspring, which is a startup um, accelerator um, here in Providence. And so a lot of attention all around the country going on with these accelerators, you know, that are that basically house startups for usually around 12 weeks and provide them with mentorship and guidance and help them take this idea and and modify it, enhance it, and grow grow it. So it's it's this incredible trend going on. It's been an explosion. Some people even say a bubble of startup accelerators around the country. And so we went deep, and, um, and uh, not uh, unlike a traditional case, we actually the student basically went and spent a day every week, kind of just they let him kind of work there, and just see and immerse himself in what was going on. And uh, in addition to researching sort of the process they use and what other accelerators use. So I'm really excited to come out with that. It'd be a great piece of teaching material, I hope. So Yeah, awesome. We'll be we'll be looking for that down the pike. In the in the meantime, the book Why Great Leaders Don't Take Yes for an Answer, it's in, available in its second edition now. It's got some awesome new material expanded on the devil's advocate concept. So if this is resonating with you, I want to encourage you to check that out. Uh, in the meantime, Michael, thank you so much for joining us inside the Leader Lab. Oh, thank you for having me, and uh, good luck with all your work as well, David.